I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. As the new school year starts, legal battles over mask mandates are being fought across the country. This week, the U.S. Department of Education announced a civil rights investigation into bans on mask mandates in several states, and there are legal challenges pending across the country to mask mandates. I'm joined by two of America's leading scholars of this question to explore the legal and constitutional issues surrounding who has the power to enact or to ban mask mandates. Charles C.W. Cook is a senior writer for National Review, where he's covered the ongoing controversies surrounding masking policies in schools. He is the former editor of National Review Online. Charles, it is wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Jennifer Celine is Kinder Institute Assistant Professor of Constitutional Democracy in the University of Missouri's Department of Political Science. She has written several articles on this topic and Jennifer, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Charles, let's begin by summing up the major legal and constitutional arguments against mask mandates in the states. Well, I, I think that the most accurate way of putting it is that there is a lot of evidence and there are a number of strong arguments holding that states are able to set this rule for themselves. It, it's not that there is a constitutional argument that, say, mask mandates are unconstitutional. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's that the uh, states within our system have the power to determine how the schools are run and that this question falls under that power. Um, there's, in some of the commentary on this, been an attempt to cast uh, localities, so school boards, counties, schools themselves, as having the equivalent relationship within the states as the states have to the federal government. Um, but I think that's a mistake. You know, the federal government has only a, a handful of enumerated powers, whereas the states have general police powers. Now, as a policy matter, personally, as a libertarian, I typically think it's a good idea for states to leave the majority of questions to local communities and to individuals. But unlike the federal government, uh, they don't have to. So that's where we start. And as such, uh, the debate has come down to statutes, to separation of powers, um, and to precedent. Um, that is to say, it is simply not true that the states don't have the power to set the rules here. Uh, it, it is a matter of what the rules are within a given state. And so, you know, the question is not whether a state legislature can set rules governing mask mandates in either direction, but whether it has and whether a given governor is correctly interpreting that law. And, you know, as we'll discuss, uh, there is actually something of a patchwork quilt of rules in this area. So in some states, uh, the governor is using existing law to set the rules for school boards or, or parents. Um, in other states, the governor is executing uh, a law that has been explicitly passed by the legislature 
in this area. Um, and so you have a, a real variety of, of legal fights um, here. Um, but my starting position on this is that the states are the fundamental building block of our constitutional order, uh, that the schools, school boards, and counties are the creation of those states, which is not true of the federal government, and that insofar as there is a dispute over uh, the detail uh, of the law, uh, unless it is clear and obvious, the question should be left to the elected branches. Um, and I think in some of these cases, although not all, uh, that has not been done. Thank you very much for that helpful introduction. Uh, Jennifer, in your August 19th piece in the conversation, you helpfully sum up the state of play when it comes to many of these legal challenges. You say that in eight states, as of August 16th, uh, there were laws enacted or governors issued orders banning public schools from requiring students to wear masks. On the opposite side, 12 states in the District of Columbia are requiring students to wear masks indoors. Uh, give us an overview of the legal and constitutional arguments in favor of mask mandates. Well, in any one of these uh, situations, anytime a government is operating and enacting some sort of rule that affects how we live our daily lives, uh, ultimately it comes down to a balance between the governmental interest in regulating health and safety of citizens as a whole and individual interests of being able to live their own lives relatively unencumbered. And so the these states that have acted in different ways have have made this balance uh, in different manners. So those who have enacted some sort of mask mandate, as as was suggested earlier, have either used uh, an executive order, some sort of gubernatorial power, which often does need to trace back to some sort of even if it is ancient uh, legislative enactment. So or. Uh, the legislature itself has has acted to either prohibit masks or or to to uh, require masks, and so we see that the states are acting either through the executive branch or through the legislative branch, and this does raise some questions about separation of powers in terms of who has the authority within a state to. Uh, to regulate individual citizens in this way, and every state differs, which is why we do see this patchwork of, of different um, strategies with respect to trying to limit the spread of COVID-19, and in particular in schools where students uh, may not have the opportunity to get vaccinated quite yet. Thank you so much for that. Well, uh, as you both explained, it's complicated. There's a patchwork of state, local, and other laws. Um, let's dig in to the cases. Let's begin with Texas, where uh, there's a lawsuit charging Governor Abbott with three violations of federal law uh, for uh, blocking a mask mandate. Uh, the case is Texas and Abbott. And the Claims include that uh, the governor's executive order violates federal discrimination law under the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, and it's preempted by federal law that authorizes school districts to implement safety measures as classes begin. Uh, so far, the Texas Supreme Court 
decided to allow the decision to enforce mask mandates to remain with the governor, not local government entities. Um, and the litigation is ongoing. Uh, Charles, can you give us a sense of the basis on which the Texas Supreme Court sided with the governor in uh, the case um, Abbott versus uh, San Antonio? Yes, so the state case here is obviously separate from the federal case. And, and given that the federal case has been made against several states, including by the Biden administration, we should probably treat that separately. So the, the local case, uh, which was, if not resolved, at least uh, advanced by a writ of uh, mandamus rejection on August 26th, um, was a simple uh, statutory case uh, with some constitutional implications within Texas. Greg Abbott, governor of Texas, uh, did not get the legislature of Texas to pass an explicit law giving him the uh, power uh, to impose a ban on mask mandates. Uh, instead, he claimed the power under the Texas Disaster Act. Uh, he says that as governor of Texas, that law accords him the power to uh, make this determination. And uh, the court agreed with him, n not only uh, on a statutory basis, but on a precedential basis, the, the order references the status quo, um, suggests that this is how it has been for a long time um, and throughout this pandemic. Um, the challengers say he's wrong. They say that the Texas Disaster Act does not give him that power. Um, and they also say, and this would be a separate issue, that the Texas Disaster Act is illegal per se. Um, because it violates the constitutional guarantee of separation of powers in Texas by handing too much power to the governor. Now, personally, that, that second argument is one I find more persuasive. Um, as the separation of powers hawk myself, I do think that at both the state level and the federal level, uh, legislatures do accord too much power to executives, especially in times of crisis. Um, but that hasn't been considered yet. Uh, and so at the moment, the governor of Texas is acting based upon uh, an older crisis law um, and given the terms of that law, I think the state Supreme Court got it right. Thank you very much for that helpful summary. Uh, Jennifer, can you give us a sense of the legal arguments that the Texas courts are considering and which side do you find more persuasive? So uh, because uh, Charles spent so much uh, time on the state aspect of things. What I'll do is cover the federal aspect of things, and then that way we, we both cover uh, all aspects of the case. Although I will say that this uh, separation of powers issue is, is relatively common when it comes to times of crisis. We see that because the legislative bodies, both at the state and federal level, uh, are designed to be deliberative, in a very good sense in that they are more representative of their constituencies and must consider a wide, a wider variety of perspectives and represent a wider variety of perspectives. Uh, these are all great things, but it does slow them down. You know, it may, it's much harder for 10 people to make a decision than for one person to make a decision. And so what we do see in times of crisis is that people tend to transfer authority to the executive branch, uh, either at 
to the governor or to the president. And so um, it is not unsurprising that during this particular time of crisis, uh, governors are looking towards statutes that were enacted in to grant them authority to act in times of crisis. And this is because the legislatures themselves recognize that it is difficult to go through the legislative process and address things in a relatively quickly manner that is often required in a time of crisis. But uh, with respect to the federal uh, aspect of the Texas case, there seems to be a couple of issues. The first um, is that mask uh, pro uh, prohibitions on mask mandates affect the ability of students who fall under the Americans Disabilities Act to receive a uh, the same level of education as their peers uh, because they say if a student has asthma um, and does not does is not able to attend class uh, the virtual learning experience that that student would have is is separate and distinct from the learning experience that that student's peers would have. And that can create problems under the federal American, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. In addition, uh, the states under the American Rescue Plan, uh, which was passed to, to aid states financially in lots of different ways, given the economic ramifications of the, of the pandemic, uh, the law was artfully written to suggest that those states who receive funding should adhere to the guidance that is promulgated by the federal Centers for Disease Control and Protection. And so one of the arguments is that these states, and in particular Texas, received this federal funding. Uh, the school boards should, and the local school districts should be, should be able to follow these guidelines, these strings that were attached to receiving the funding and the, the, the governor is, is preventing them from doing so. Um, and then I think the last important thing to note with respect to all of the federal, uh, Things And one of the things that makes this all very, very messy and from a legal perspective is that at the constitutional level, the federal constitutional level, local entities are considered to be mere creatures of the state. So they don't have a distinct legal identity. And that creates all sorts of problems when we're blurring these federal laws and these state laws and trying to figure out what, what constitutionally, uh, the the local school boards can do both at the state and in the federal level. Thank you very much for that. Uh, and I'm grateful to both of you for disaggregating these complicated arguments. Uh, it's very illuminating to get into the weeds. Uh, let's turn now to Florida, where Governor DeSantis issued an executive order affirming parents' rights under Florida law to make health decisions for their minor children and protecting parents' rights to make decisions regarding the masking of their children in regard to COVID-19. There are uh, at least two lawsuits against that mask mandate ban, uh, which invoke the Florida Constitution, which says that adequate provision shall be made by law for a uniform, efficient, safe, secure, and high-quality system of free public schools. And uh, in addition, the suits allege a violation of home rule. On August 27th, 
of Florida judge blocked the governor's order banning mask mandates, the case of McCarthy versus DeSantis. Uh, Charles, tell us about that Florida case and on what grounds did the judge block the mandate? I think the, the Florida case is, is in a sense, the, the perfect example of uh, the, uh, the approach that I would like judges not to take. And, and that is not because the judge was uh, activist. It, it's not because, you know, the judge is an extremist. Um, it, it's because I think that the fundamental question of where power lies here was answered incorrectly. Now, there was much in the judge's decision that irritated me. He said, for example, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, which is a particular um, uh, irritation trigger of mine, given the case that came from and uh, the, the circumstances in which it was written. Um, but th that was uh, in his, his verbal introduction, not in the case itself. And, and the case itself really came down to how to interpret uh, the patchwork quilt of laws in Florida. And, and there, I think Judge Cooper has a defensible argument. So the, the DeSantis administration, since it issued this order, has argued that he has the power to set this rule, uh, thanks to the laws that govern the State Department of Health and the Department of Education. Um, for example, the Department of Health, uh, with the um, help of the Department of Education is in Florida law, and I'll, and I'll quote, um, uh, allowed to adopt rules governing the immunization of children against the testing for and the control of preventable communicable diseases. And DeSantis says that in concert with a law that was passed in 2019, uh, which is known as the Parents' Bill of Rights, uh, he has the power as governor to make this determination. And that, that law, again, I'll, I'll quote, I wrote it down, um, uh, protects the fundamental rights of a parent to direct the upbringing, education, health care, or mental health of a minor child without demonstrating that such action is reasonable and necessary to achieve a compelling state interest. Now, Judge Cooper says that DeSantis came to the wrong conclusion here. Uh, he says that when DeSantis looked at the provision of the law that holds that school districts, notwithstanding parental rights, may take actions that are reasonable and necessary to achieve a compelling state interest, um, that he got it wrong. You know, specifically, Cooper says that DeSantis's ban preemptively prohibits mask requirements and that that doesn't give school districts the chance to prove that the measures are reasonable. Um, and Cooper argued... I mean, this is not a written opinion yet. This is still verbal. Um, he argued that the measures were reasonable, or at least they could be conceived as being reasonable, and that DeSantis is on the wrong side of the science. Um, and he seemed to side uh, with parents who point to Florida's state constitution, which guarantees that um, uh, a uniform, efficient, safe, secure, and high-quality system. Now, um, the argument that Cooper made, I think, is defensible. The problem is that none of the provisions that I've just mentioned are explicit, and nor are they self-executing. The Florida legislature has not met and debated this question. Uh, it has not passed a law determining the contours of this question. And as such, the existing laws, some of which are somewhat contradictory, require judgment. I mean, what is safe? <laughs> 
what is reasonable, what is necessary. And so what you have here is a judge interpreting these laws and deciding that the governor's call was the wrong one, which is, which is not a problem per se. We have judges for that reason. But I think on the merits, this really could have gone either way. And as such, I would prefer that those questions are answered in the absence of an, an obvious error to the political branches. And in this case, that's the governor, unless the legislature is recalled. So I, I don't think this judge uh, erred. I don't think it was a disgraceful decision. I, I, I don't think it was a usurpation of power. But I do think that he should have let it be, given that both the governor and the legislature were elected recently, and that if the legislature wants to change the law here, it can. Thank you very much for that, uh, for noting the Florida precedents that Judge Cooper invoked, uh, which found that individual rights are limited by their impact on the rights of others, uh, for noting and objecting to his oral statement that adults have a right to drink alcohol but not to drive drunk because there's a right to free speech but not to yell fire in a crowded theater, and for your uh, statement that given the fact that the case could have come out either way, your sense is that deference to the political branches is generally appropriate. Uh, Jennifer, what's your um, analysis of the Florida case? Do you agree that there are good arguments on both sides? And, and what do you think of Charles's suggestion that in the face of uncertainty, uh, deference uh, to the governor is appropriate? Um, I think that that argument raises something that has been hidden in a lot of our discourse about COVID-19 implementation, uh, and it is the, the role of the administrative state and the bureaucracy, which falls within the executive branch, in that because laws are not self-executing, it doesn't matter what I, as, as an administrative lawyer, I can tell you, <laughs> it does not matter how specific the state legislature is about a particular policy. Inevitably, that policy must be implemented by administrative entities and interpreted by administrative entities. And these entities are often located within the executive branch. So there's a transfer of authority allowing the executive branch to interpret what the um, legislature has said, make these sorts of judgments that Charles was talking about uh, with respect to what, what the law says, what it means, and how we go from the actual text to a legitimately in implemented policy. And so uh, with respect to the court system, the court system in general, if we look across all policies and all areas, most judges do defer to the political branches in these sorts of issues because they recognize that a, the political branches have some sort of constituency, some sort of connection to uh, citizens themselves. Uh, now, at the state level, things get a little bit more complicated because many judges are elected themselves, although it's by a different process. Um, and so there's usually a little bit of deference with respect to that. And there's also a deference uh, with respect to interpreting scientific data and highly technical policies. So there is a presumption within the judiciary that it is often the case that executive officials or administrative officials who specialize in particular policy matters tend to have more expertise 
than a more generalist judge who focuses more on the procedural aspect of things and the, the generalist law legal aspect of things. And, and so that comes into play too in a, in a pretty complicated way that, that we don't like to really think about or talk about in, in political discourse because it's really complicated. But this, this administrative state aspect of things is, is pretty important. And it comes into play even if we're talking about local school boards. Local sport school boards are themselves an administrative entity that have to interpret policies and, and try to figure out how to take written text into actually implemented policies. And so how, how much deference we give to that implementation process and that interpretation process is going to vary state to state. And quite frankly, it shouldn't, but it does vary judge to judge. Thank you very much for that and for uh, elucidating this really interesting debate about who should decide, the governor or administrative officials. Let's put just a few more of these state cases on the table before pulling back and talking about whether there might be any kind of national resolution to this patchwork of of legal challenges. Um, Next up is Arizona, where a statute says uh, a school district or charter school may not require a student or teacher to require a vaccine for COVID-19 or to wear a face covering to participate in in in-person instruction. On August 12th, the Arizona School Boards Association was named lead plaintiff in a lawsuit uh, against the state of Arizona. And the arguments in the complaint include the allegation that the legislation unfairly discriminates against Arizona's public and charter school students as compared to their private school peers regarding their right to a safe education, which is a fundamental right under Arizona law. Charles, your thoughts on the legal arguments in the Arizona case? Well, this is a completely different set up because in Arizona the legislature passed this measure and then the governor signed it so we don't here have a dispute over executive authority we have a dispute over the merits of the law and the claim being made in Arizona is an equal protection claim that the the legislation unfairly discriminated against certain students Uh, I think this is extremely weak. Um, The state is in charge of public schools and some charter schools, but it's not in charge of private schools. That's what a private school means. And it cannot be the case, surely, that every time the state makes a different call than a private school would, it's discriminating. Uh, And if it's not the case that every time the state makes a different call than a private school would, then this ultimately comes down to risk assessment. And that risk assessment is the sort of thing we elect public officials to determine. I mean, my local private school, for example, has this sort of airlock system at the entrance, which I presume is there to mitigate against attackers or school shooters, and the public school does not. Is that an equal protection violation? I don't think it is. It might be a case for improving security at the public school. So I see this case as, as weak. 
Um, and, and, I, and I think it is telling that the strongest cases against uh, states that have instituted these policies have come when there is a real dispute over authority, not when the state legislature, uh, which has police powers, which in almost every state created the education system in the first place, which created the school boards, which funds and determines the curriculum, uh, in the schools has got together and made a call on this difficult question. Uh, Arizona has done everything right, in my view. That's, that's not to say its decision is correct. That's a matter of political disagreement. But Arizona has behaved exactly as our constitutional order assumes that it will. And uh, I, I think attempts to nitpick using weak equal protection claims are uh, unfortunate. Thank you so much for that. Jennifer, as Charles says, it's an equal protection claim at the heart of this lawsuit. The Arizona Constitution guarantees equal protection as well as calling education a fundamental right. And the claim here is that the distinction between public and private school children uh, isn't necessary to promote compelling interests as well as arbitrarily distinguishing uh, between public and private school students. Uh, Charles calls this argument weak. Uh, do you agree or not? I would say on this one, we are uh, diametrically opposed <laughs> in that I, I actually find the public and the public private distinction and argument, the equal protection argument to be one of the most intriguing um, in that it is 100% true that the state does not have the authority to regulate private schools in the same way that it does public and charter schools. Um, and the the issue here is that not that private schools and public and charter schools are different. They are. And by making a parent making a decision to send their child to private school, they are selecting on a certain type of education and they are making that, that decision. And, and private schools by definition will look different than public schools. And no one is arguing that, that they won't or that it is unconstitutional that they do so. However, when the state acts in a way that prevents parents or children, prevents public schools from providing a safe environment, as is the case in this particular case, then you start um, drawing distinctions between uh, citizens and their ability to acquire a safe uh, public school or a safe educational environment. And what is intriguing about this is that underlying many of these issues are distinctions. The decision to send your child to private or public school, how private and public schools are run, how charter schools are run. Um, there are lots of other issues such as race, um, and socioeconomic status that come into play when we're when we're talking about these distinctions. And so one could argue that by acting to prohibit public schools to uh, require ma masks, you are privileging a certain community that is already privileged in a variety of ways. And, and that that runs, it, it, it can make 
us a little uncomfortable if we start thinking about the implications of that with respect to health and safety. And and this argument, this distinction between, okay, certain types of citizens are allowed a particular environment because of their socioeconomic status um, and, and others are not, um, is very similar. The, the arguments here are very similar to the ADA arguments where you say that, well, because certain students have disabilities, they're going to be in, they're going to be, um, not able to attain the same level of education as those who do not have disabilities because they, um, cannot attend schools, uh, that have, or, for various health and safety reasons uh, with respect to banning mask mandates. And so these arguments about draw, essentially creating groups of students who have the right to a particular type of educational environment, specifically a safe educational environment, is a, is a really, really intriguing argument and, and one that is I'm interested to see how it plays out long term. Thank you so much, uh, and thank you both for this really interesting tour through state constitutional law, uh, which varies according to the state constitutions and statutes at issues. Let's put one other big challenge on the table before pulling back, and that's Arkansas. In April 2021, uh, the Arkansas legislature uh, provided that all mandatory face covering requirements, including those imposed by executive order of the governor shall end. Uh, there's a lawsuit uh, called McLean versus Arkansas, which alleges, among other things, that the act violates the separation of powers doctrine established in the Arkansas Constitution. And we have a preliminary block of the ban by a judge in Arkansas who invoked the separation of powers requirements of the state constitution and said that uh, the act usurps the authority specifically granted to the governor with respect to declarations of emergency. Charles, help us disaggregate the arguments in the Arkansas case. Well, this is a funny one. uh, And it also illustrates that you really can make any argument uh, in either direction. And of course, that that's how the law works. That that is not a problem. Plaintiffs are supposed to do that. But (laughs) This one actually highlights how how thorny this whole issue is because you have a structural setup that is ostensibly the same as Arizona's in which the legislature in Arkansas passed a law uh, barring a statewide mask mandate. Uh, uh, That legislation was then signed by the governor. But the governor now thinks that it would, in his words, be conservative, reasonable, and compassionate to allow local school districts to protect those students who are under 12 and not eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. So he's gone back on the law that he signed. He wants the legislature to repeal the law that he signed. It doesn't seem to want to, uh, but it's moot for the moment, at least, because on August 6th, the court stepped in with a temporary injunction, which the governor now agrees with, <laughs> and uh, said that the law was unconstitutional. Um, so uh, the the case in question was a uh, separation of powers case. Uh, there were other cases made, uh, including equal protection, but the, the temporary injunction was revolved around the 
the emergency powers. Um, and uh, I find that some, somewhat funny because you've essentially got here parents saying uh, that the uh, law is infringing upon the executive's power to do what he thinks is necessary during a crisis. Whereas in Texas and Florida, you have parents arguing uh, that the governor's actions are an unacceptable use of emergency powers and are usurping the legislature's um Right. Uh, you, you also have a, a, a marked difference I've noticed in the press coverage. For example, um, in Florida and Arizona, you have school boards who have, as the press has put it, defied the governor. But in Arkansas, while this was pending, parents saying they intended to break the law were cast as um, threatening to break the law. Um, now, of course, in both cases, uh, they are the law, and that doesn't change uh, contingent upon how we see it. Um, on the merits, uh, I can absolutely see the argument here uh, that the uh, the court went with, um, but I'm mostly interested in the Arkansas case because uh, it, it does demonstrate the degree to which everyone engaged in this ultimately political debate is wielding legal arguments uh, that suit their side um, rather than legal arguments that are part of a consistent um, jurisprudential philosophy. Many thanks for that. Uh, Jennifer, do you agree with Charles or not that both sides are using these arguments opportunistically uh, to suit their side? And what do you think of the separation of powers arguments in the Arkansas case on the merits? Well, I would agree that, yes, in this particular case, and in any particular case, as Charles said, that's one of the beauties of the law. Well, he, I don't believe he used that exact term, but <laughs> um, yeah, so I think 100% people in, tend to interpret the law based on what how, how it suits their particular argument at a particular point in time. And it is uh, the best lawyers are actually trained to argue on both sides of any particular provision. And that allows, <laughs> well, that's great because it trains great lawyers. It also allows us to see both sides and, and manipulate words in a way that, that tends to work for, towards our advantage. Um, I think that what is interesting also about this case is that uh, we are talking again about the text of the law and as Charles mentioned, in this particular instance, it's a little unclear whether the executive would be enforcing that law. Um, and we see this over and over again, not, uh, I mean, not just with respect to the pandemic, where there are so many laws that, that legislatures pass across a variety of policies, and the executive branch needs to decide uh, what to prioritize and what not to prioritize. And so uh, you can't possibly enforce absolutely every single law that is passed. It's just, it's, we do not, our governments do not have enough resources to do so. So it could be that the executive decides in this particular instance to deprioritize um, enforcement of this particular law, which uh, raises some some particularly interesting questions. Um, and again, I just want to stress, is nothing unusual? The uh, unusual aspect about all of this is the fact that we are dealing with these issues in the midst of a pandemic, in a 
incredibly heightened partisan environment, um, which just sometimes can blind us to the fact that these issues come up over and over and over again, balancing governmental interests against civil rights and civil liberties. Um, what role do states and localities play in in uh, policy making? Uh, what is the proper role of the executive branch? What is the proper role of the legislative branch? What is the proper role of the judiciary? These things come up every day. And so one of the really interesting things about the Arkansas case and also all the other cases we've talked about is that they're really highlighting a lot of constitutional, both at the state and the federal level, constitutional tensions that are built into our system. And because we are in a time of crisis, they it is it is it feels heightened and emergent and very very like uh, I, I, I losing my train of thought in terms of it feels very very prominent and unusual and we're living in crazy times. But at the end of the day, we're dealing with issues that arise on a daily basis, just in the midst of a pandemic. Thank you very much for that. And thank you both for really helpfully walking us through the complexities of these state cases, which, as you say, Jennifer, highlight broader constitutional tensions in our system. Uh, I want to ask now whether there's any likelihood or prospect of a national resolution to any of these cases. Might the Supreme Court intervene? And are there significant uh, federal constitutional issues that the court might be tempted to resolve. To take just one example in the Nevada case uh, where families are suing uh, on the grounds that their constitutional rights were violated by the mask mandates, the plaintiffs invoke the U.S. Constitution's Ninth Amendment guaranteeing the right to privacy and the Fourteenth Amendment guarantee of due process and privileges or immunities. Th those arguments don't often succeed at the U.S. Supreme Court, but Charles, can you imagine any circumstance in which the U.S. Supreme Court would intervene in any of these cases? No, and, and in fact, I think that there are no strong federal arguments in either direction. I think that the challenge against Nevada's statewide mask mandate is embarrassingly weak. Uh, it references the Ninth Amendment as if that is some independent font of individual liberty, which it is not. It references the 14th Amendment, uh, which does not countenance striking down mask mandates at the state level and cannot be read to do so. Those aren't what those provisions do. And then in the other direction, I think the cases that have been brought against the states that recruit federal law to their sides are weak too. I mean, the American Rescue Plan was mentioned uh, this obviously raises the same issue as was raised in South Dakota v. Dole and NFIB v. Sebelius. That is, what strings can the federal government attach to spending bills? Now, obviously, if one were to combine the federal income tax with the New Deal interpretations of the spending clause, in theory, you could have a federal government that was practically omnipotent. I mean, the federal government could collect huge amounts of money, it could then dole it back to the states with all sorts of rules hanging off it, and it could get around the explicit limitations on its power. Uh, and the court's aware of that problem. It's never quite set the line. So you have uh, a court that has upheld uh, a, 
spending rule that essentially sets the national drinking age at 21, but struck down the Medicaid expansion in Obamacare. So essentially what the court has said is nudges are okay, but overbearing demands are not. And I think the question then is, which one would this be? I think it's overbearing. I mean, I think the the issue of schools is explicitly reserved to the states. It's extremely important. Um, it always has been an issue reserved to the states, with the exception, obviously, of the of the racial questions that are answered by the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, and then the other federal case that is made is is that there is a violation of civil rights law going on here. And I think that's an extremely radical argument, I must say. I mean, if if that argument were adopted, it would essentially obviate everything we've all just talked about. And it would institute a nationwide mask mandate in America's schools. And it would do so on a flimsy pretext. I mean, there are obviously civil rights laws that can be applied to schools and should be. Uh, but none of the sections that have been invoked here accord the federal government freestanding power. None of them prevent discrimination in theory, you know, the, the Section 504, for example, prevents discrimination against students with disabilities, um, qualified individuals with disabilities is the legal language. And now that could plausibly be someone who has COVID. Um, it, it can't protect uninfected children from the mere risk um, of disease. And, and likewise, Title VI is an anti-discrimination statute, but it's not a generalized power for the federal government to override the judgments of the states. And I think we really ought to be careful here, irrespective of which side we're on, as to what we wish for. I mean, it, it is an irony, in my view, that the Biden administration, which has made this argument, Secretary Cardona has made this argument, um, is essentially implying that in-person schooling is legally, federally mandatory and remote education is illegal. You know, that the same remote education uh, that was um, fought for by school boards and teachers unions last year, quite reasonably, for months, um, is now apparently um, uh, racial discrimination. So I, I think what you're seeing here uh, is what we're seeing across the rest of our politics, unfortunately, which is an attempt to nationalize uh, all of the most thorny and potent questions in our politics and to do so using a constitutional structure and a set of federal laws that simply aren't designed um, to do it. So uh, in short, no, I don't think there are any federal cases against statewide mask mandates. Uh, if your school has one tough, I don't think there is a federal case against the states that have barred them or set different rules either. Thank you very much for that uh, clear statement. Jennifer Charles just said that there is no strong federal legal arguments against state mask mandates, and he uh, gave us his thoughts about both the constitutional arguments involving Ninth Amendment uh, privacy and Fourteenth Amendment due process, as well as the statutory arguments involving the American Rescue Plan and violations of civil rights law. Uh, do you agree or disagree with his analysis of the strength of the federal arguments against state mask mandates? Well, so I think there are a couple of, of key things to think about here. Um, I believe one of your original questions was about whether the federal government could do anything. Um, and, and the answer is that with respect to telling states that they can or cannot enact a, a mandate, it is very clear 
that the federal government cannot do anything with respect to that. And so the question becomes, does the federal government have creative ways of essentially incentivizing the states to enact policies that would um, would ultimately either require masks or or whatnot. And it seems like here, this is where this is where the legal minefield is. And there seem to be two particular avenues here. One I would say is probably going to be a little bit more fruitful than the other. Uh, so the first is the role of the Department of Education. So the Federal Department of Education is in charge of administering the money uh, and the grants that are given to both states and local school boards. Um, and one could argue, potentially in the future, that the Department of Education uh, needs to be very careful about how it's administering those those policies. So how it's making those decisions, um, how it is implementing using its authority that was statutory de statutorily delegated, say, through the American Rescue Plan or any other uh, statutory law that, that gives this, the Department of Education the authority to distribute funds to the state and local schools. And so there is an administrative ar law argument to be made here potentially, if the Biden administration is not careful about how the Department of Education is is acting under its, its delegated authority. And I think that of all the things, it is most likely that the Supreme Court would be interested in um, hearing a case like that. The, the Supreme Court has been very active over the past several terms with respect to administrative law and um, trying to figure out deference doctrines and exactly how various uh, administrative entities are structured and how they should operate. So it seems like there is a potential there. It has not been fully explored yet uh, because we have, I think, the Biden administration itself and the Department of Education is just now moving on this. Um, so that's that's one potential group of lawsuits that could come forward. I think that is where there is the most opportunity for it to rise to the level of the United States Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court has uh, ruled on a couple of pandemic-related cases that involved the First Amendment and particularly the free exercise of religion um, in and, and th these have been very, very narrow rulings, very, very specific rulings. I personally believe it's going to be very difficult. I would agree with Charles that it's, I think it's unlikely that the Supreme Court is going to hear and rule on a case related to privacy, broadly defined as the right to raise your children the way you choose or whatnot. Um, I think the Supreme Court's going to let that issue percolate a little bit longer before it would even consider jumping into that minefield. And, and I would say that um, it's a little unclear as to how strong that argument would be when balanced against um, governmental interests and the interests of others. Uh, and then the, the last point would be with respect to these violations of laws like the Americans Disabilities Act. And I think it's really important that we think about the fact that the American Dis with Disabilities Act um, allows individuals who have designated 
disabilities to have an equal opportunity to succeed. And I will use myself as an example. I am immunosuppressed. I have been on medication that suppresses my immune system for the past 10 years. Um, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, I qualify um, and I, am, I receive certain accommodations due to my disability. Um, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, and I am able to do my job as effectively because of those accommodations. Um, I, and similarly, uh, with respect to students who have disabilities, they should not be treated differently. They should have the same opportunity to succeed in their job, which is to learn, as students who do not have those disabilities, who are not immunosuppressed um, or, uh, you know, suffer from a variety of other things that make them more likely, uh, more susceptible to COVID. And um, I, th I think that that, thinking about it in that way um, is, is the proper way to think about it with respect to the legal claims with respect to the ADA. I think that those are going to be successful in, in various circumstances across the country. However, again, it seems like I, I, I would question whether the Supreme Court would, would take that case right now. Um, but you know, I'm not a Supreme Court justice, so I, can't really say for certain what they're, what's going on in their heads. <laughs> very true. And thanks very much for those uh, thoughts. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this very nuanced and, and really illuminating discussion of the complexities of the state cases challenging efforts by governors and legislatures to ban mask mandates. Charles, what closing thoughts would you like to leave our We the People listeners with about the many complicated legal and constitutional issues we've discussed? I think the fact that this is so complicated underscores the need to protect our robust federal system. This is something I've written a lot about in general. I think our country needs a robust federal system now in general, perhaps more than it ever did. Uh, forget COVID, we are deeply divided. We have a whole host of different conceptions of the good life, of what we want from our politics. We have a great deal of diversity, not just racial, but geographic, political, religious. And it is a good thing that we're able to hammer these questions out uh, within our own communities. And I think that this pandemic and the questions that are just thrown up has reinforced that. Uh, and this one in particular, uh, I, I think, highlights that, that each state has different people with different expectations. It also has different laws. It has different schools. And uh, the fact that we had to go through four or five of them and that each one yielded uh, a different nuanced conversation shows that as well. Um, so, you know, I understand uh, that many of us, myself included, look around the country and say, well, I think I know best. <laughs> um, but uh, most other people think that too. And uh, as such, um, I am glad that we have 50 states and I'm glad that thus far at least these issues have been resolved as close to the people they affect as possible and I hope they will continue to do so. 
Thank you so much for that. Jennifer, the last word in this great discussion is to you. What are your closing thoughts for We the People listeners on the many complicated legal and constitutional issues raised by challenges to attempts to ban mask mandates in the states? So um, I would say that the one, I would highlight something earlier I said in that the, the, this issue, this debate, uh, really does highlight key core principles that are in, built into our constitutional system. Um, and, and one of them is, is federalism and, and it, they highlight why federalism matters. Federalism was, is built into our constitutional system to account for divergent needs across the country, um, and to allow for different political perspectives to bubble up and rise and for citizens to be able to articulate uh, a variety of viewpoints. In addition, um, Federalism was established in order to diffuse and to decentralize political power. That was one of the founding principles of our country. Um, and then now, today, we tend to think about federalism from a conflict perspective. What can the federal government do or not do? How do we pr protect the states from governmental interference? But instead, what we should really do is think about the fact that state officials operate in a world that is incredibly nuanced and value-laden. And, and how they exercise their discretion has real consequences for individual citizens, as we're seeing on a daily basis during the midst of this pandemic. And because the power of government at both the federal and the state level um, is so strong, and probably very different than what the framers originally anticipated. If we look at all the things that government does today, um, we need to provide for accountability mechanisms that hold governmental officials accountable for their decisions, um, which again is, is one of the justifications of federalism in the first place. And so I guess to close, I would just say, um, I'm actually going to borrow from Woodrow Wilson with my own little tweak, which is what I do with my students. Um, and say that our overall goal when it comes to all of this and, and thinking about governmental operations within our constitutional system should be as follows. First, we should figure out what are the legal rules at play, which I think we did a really good job of doing here, um, and then discover what government at various levels, given those rules, can properly and successfully do. And then finally, and this is the most important part, we need to figure out how to do those things with enlightenment, equity, and maximum efficiency at minimum cost. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you so very much, Charles Cook and Jennifer Celine, for educating all of us about the complexities of these state cases. Constitutional understanding requires that we take the time to educate ourselves about what the Constitution means, and that requires digging in to legal details. You have helped us do that in a way that has spread much light, and on behalf of all We the People listeners, I'm very grateful. Charles Cook, Jennifer Celine, thank you so much for a great discussion. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed our conversation immensely. Today's show was produced by Jackie McDermott and engineered by David Stotts. Research was provided by Mac Taylor, Olivia Gross, and Lana Ulrich. Homework of the week. Please read one of the lower court decisions we discussed. Our guests did such a good job at helping us unpack them, 
And the best way to understand them is to read them yourself. And please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional education, illumination, and debate. And always remember, friends, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of engaging thoughtful conversations and promoting constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount, a dollar, five dollars or more, to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.